Welcome to Your Cyber Path, the podcast that helps you get your dream cybersecurity job by sharing the secrets of experienced hiring managers and top cybersecurity professionals with you. Now, on to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Your Cyber Path. Welcome back. Hopefully, you've listened to previous episodes and uh, we're glad you're here. I'm Kip Boyle. I'm here with Jason Dion. Hey, Jason, how's it going? Hey, Kip. Nice to see you again. It's good to see you too. I told you I was going to Kazakhstan, but did I tell you what happened? Did I tell you anything about it? Uh, a little bit, but uh, I want to share with the audience. <laughs> yeah, okay. Listen, so uh, everybody, I went. I, the reason I'm telling you I went to Kazakhstan is because I never planned to go to Kazakhstan, all right? This is, uh, I, I, I see this as like one of the benefits of being in the cybersecurity career field because you never know when someone's going to walk up to you and say, we need your help. And oh, by the way, would you mind going to Kazakhstan to, to help people because turns out people in Kazakhstan need cybersecurity just as much as anybody else. So go figure, that, right? <laughs> go figure. And that's what happened to me. Uh, actually, uh, the, uh, the opportunity came over from uh, somebody that I was loosely connected to on LinkedIn. I got to tell you, if you're not on LinkedIn, then these things will never happen for you. They don't happen for me every day, but they do happen. I'd say once or twice a year, somebody reaches out to me on LinkedIn and asks me, you know, would I be interested in an opportunity? And this is one of those cases. So, uh, so I, I went down to visit Jason in Orlando. We did the recording for the course. We talked about that last episode. And then I took, and then I got on an airplane and off to Kazakhstan. I went, listen, Kazakhstan is an amazing place. It is unique. Whenever I go to a new place, I always ask myself, what does this place remind me of? Like, where else have I been that this place reminds me of? And I had to think about, it took, I had to like mash up five different places. To, in order to dis fully describe what I was experiencing in the capital of Kazakhstan, which is uh, Nur Sultan, which is also known as Astana. And sometimes I felt like uh, I was in an old Soviet bloc uh, country, because of course they were, and there were still remnants of that everywhere, uh, including some the uniforms of the police war was pretty interesting. The Ministry of Defense building still had all that old Soviet architecture. Uh, sometimes I felt like I was in, an, in a science fiction movie because the architecture of the steel and the glass and kind of the way they had everything laid out on a lot of these places was very futuristic looking to my eyes. Sometimes I felt like I was home in a mall because they have these shopping malls that are just like the malls that we have here in America. And then sometimes I felt like I was in Las Vegas because some of the apartments, uh, they have these huge apartment um, buildings and the facades on them reminded me of like Caesar's Palace in mm. Las Vegas. And just kind of some, some of the ways that the city was laid out also with these huge wide boulevards also kind of reminded me of Las Vegas. And um, anyway, so I'll tell you the most, the most interesting thing that happened to me, uh, pedestrian thing, a normal thing, is we went to eat at a Chinese restaurant. We were served by... Uh, Kazakhs, right? So people who are indigenous to that area, and they spoke Russian. Huh. <laughs> uh, I guess because it's kind of Kazakhstan, being a, a former Soviet bloc, they probably had to learn Russian. Yeah, <laughs> they did. And Kazakhstan has like a 3,000 mile border with Russia and like a three or 5,000 mile border with China. So mm -hmm. like politically, it's been the geopolitical, like they're sitting right next to these two giant, you know, movers and shakers on the world stage. And I, I could go on for a long time about the implications of that. But I think you can probably imagine with what's going on in Ukraine, 
that, you know, people in Kazakhstan would be on a little edge right now. <laughs> I can imagine. And, and and probably why they need cybersecurity there, uh, you know, to, to make sure they're being well protected. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, it was fabulous. If anybody gets if anybody gets a chance to go, I would say go. Don't mention Borat. Don't say anything about that. Leave your mankini at home. <laughs> You won't need it. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the countries I haven't been to yet. I, I've been to you know, 50, 60, 70 countries around the world. I, I travel quite a bit, uh, both in my previous job and, and my current job. And I have not gotten to Kazakhstan yet. So I'll have to keep an eye out for an uh, opportunity to get out there. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if more opportunities show up. They are trying to really assert themselves onto the uh, international scene. And boy, there's... I met some really great people, so I have a lot of good things to say about Kazakhstan. But anyway, um, so let's get to the point of the episode, shall we? Uh, we're going to talk about the CIA triad, and in particular, really, we're going to talk about the letter I in the CIA triad, which stands for what, Jason? Integrity. And, uh, you know, just a, a quick reminder, uh, we're going through a five-part series right now. This is part two. And we were talking about the CIA triad, which we talked about last week, being that it's really more of a, a pentagram, I guess, because there's five points, not three anymore. Uh, right. The original CIA triad was confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And then they tacked on the N and the A at the end. So it's now C-I-A-N-A, -A, which is non-repudiation and authentication. And this week, we're really going to be focused on integrity. Now, when we talk about integrity, um, how do we best define integrity? Well, I like to think about integrity as saying that the file or computer or the thing that you're measuring has not been modified since you created it. So, you know, if I wrote down a, a, list for a course that we're going to build, right? I say, okay, here's the 500 lessons we're going to put in this course. Mm -hmm. Once I do that and I, I stamp my, you know, I say, hey, I'm done. And I save that file. That file should keep those 500 lessons in the right order and should not be modified unless I specifically want it to be modified. So if I right. put it on my, my storage drive and all of a sudden I go back tomorrow and there's only 300 lessons, that means we had a bad thing happen. Somebody touched my file and changed it without my permission, and that would be a, a lack of integrity. So the whole idea with integrity is making sure that the thing uh, hasn't been modified or changed since you created it and you and you said that that's where it needs to be. Exactly. So you know, uh, Kip, you, you give me. I know when we we're doing show prep, you kind of gave me an example in the real world that really wasn't even like a digital example necessarily, but I thought it was a great example. So I'm, I'm going to let you go ahead and yeah. give the real world example of an ATM. <laughs> sure. <laughs> It, it's we'll call it semi-digital because there's a little there's a little bit of computer action going on here, but uh, but not not much. It's cer certainly, we don't think about it. So if you go to an aut automated teller machine and you want a hundred dollars or whatever your currency is, and uh, and and so you put your your card in there, you tap in your pin, and then you tell the ATM, "I'd like a hundred dollars, please." Well, you know it takes a moment, right, for the ATM to decide whether it should give you a hundred dollars. Well, what's going on in the background is that the ATM has generated a message and it sent that message back to the central bank, uh, central computer at the, uh, at the bank. It may not be your bank, but it, it is a computer that knows what your bank balance is wherever that account happens to be. Now, the, the important thing to know as far as integrity is concerned is that uh, message that goes from the ATM that you're standing at that goes back to the, to the computer that knows your account balance is not encrypted for confidentiality, it is encrypted for integrity because they don't want the amount of money that you're asking for to change from the time you type it in on the keypad to the time that it gets back to the computer uh, at the bank. Also, they don't want that number to change because if the bank computer says, sure, Kip can have a hundred bucks, he's got $101 in his account, so that's okay. 
when that message comes back to the ATM, that ATM should not dispense $1,000, right? Yep. But if we could somehow get in there and mess with that message, the ATM would go, guess he's got $1,000. Let's give him $1,000. But of course, I wouldn't because I, don't, I only have $101. So <clears throat> when people designed ATMs, they said, what's the most important thing here, CIA-wise? And it was integrity. And so that's what you have today. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point, right? Because when you're building a system, if you're working as a cybersecurity engineer or even an analyst and you're looking at a system and you're trying to determine what is the most important thing, when we talk about the CIA triad, it's not this perfect triangle of CINA, but instead this triangle can get moved around. And so for some applications, confidentiality is critically important and others, it really doesn't matter at all. And so as you start thinking about what is the most important part of the CI or A for this application, you can start stretching and, and putting more resources against those things. For example, you know, we talked last week a lot about confidentiality. And in the world I came from in the DOD, we deal with a lot of things that are secret and top secret and caveated information. And mm -hmm. so we really focus highly on confidentiality. But integrity is important too. Um, and, and there's some things where integrity is more important than confidentiality. And, and that's really what we're going to be focused on today as we start going through yep. uh, this particular uh, podcast episode. Uh, for example, one of the things I think about when I think about integrity, in one of my past jobs, I was doing digital forensics. And if I was going to get a hard drive, you know, let's say I, I'm working with the FBI, we kick down Kip's door, we grab his <laughs> computer because we think he's got some bad stuff on there, right? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make an image of his hard drive before I start doing my analysis because I don't want to do my analysis on his actual hard drive because I might change his files, right? And so instead, I want to make a, a, a perfect photocopy or, you know, a disk image yeah. of your hard drive. A clone. A clone of it, exactly. And once I clone it, how do I verify it is the same? Well, I take a hash of the original drive and the copied drive, and if those hashes match, that means I have integrity because nothing has changed. And now I can do all my operations on that other drive that I made the copy of, and if I you know, change anything, it's okay because I can go back to the original copy that I had. Um, and it, even if you know, as I'm doing things, I can continually run a hash and see have I modified any files on there. And if I did, I now have a lack of integrity. And if I have a lack of integrity and Kip was a bad guy and he was you know, selling drugs or doing whatever, the evidence on his computer is no longer valid because I messed up the integrity. And so and integrity I in the digital forensics world is so critically important <laughs> because Kip, the bad guy, is not going to jail anymore because we <laughs> lost the evidence, right? That's what integrity is about. And so depending on where you work in the cybersecurity realm, confidentiality might be really important or integrity might be really important or both are important. And then and you may not have heard that word hash that Jason used, but we're going to define that before we're done today. Most definitely. Yeah, we're definitely going to go through and talk about what a hash is and how we use it and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of the, the, the basics as we get started here and talking about integrity. So the, the next thing I want to do is I want to, you know, kind of put on my certification instructor hat again. Definitely. And I want to tell you that if you're going to study for a certification or you hear these terms in a job interview, you should be thinking about integrity. So anytime I hear integrity, what are the words I always associate with it? Well, the first one is hash or hashing. Mm -hmm. And that really serves as a digital fingerprint that uniquely identifies an individual file, a collection of files, or an entire hard disk of information. And we'll talk more about hashing in just a second. Mm -hmm. We also talk a lot about digital signatures when we start talking mm -hmm. about um, integrity because digital signatures use hashing and encryption to be able to serve as an integrity check. And then the other thing we always hear, uh, especially in the, in the military side, we use a lot of anti-tamper physical devices. So you may have bought a iPhone or a PlayStation or something like that. And if you try to open up that device, you'll find there's a little sticker on there that can't be removed. 
And if you remove that sticker, they know you have broken the seal and that somebody has been inside of it. And so your warranty is now va uh, invalid. And that's what we're talking about with the anti-tamper physical device. Uh, for instance, my wife just got her new iPhone last night. They shipped it in and on the side of the box, there was an anti-tamper seal. And mm -hmm. we could tell that nobody has touched that phone since it left the factory because it has that seal on it. Mm -hmm. If that seal is broken, that's a physical indication that somebody has messed with that device. So, And then you, don't, you can't trust the integrity of it. You don't know if somebody's put something on there. Exactly, because it, they may have gone in there and added a little extra chip in there that's taking a copy of every password that goes through that phone, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want that to happen. So that's why we really focus on this whole idea of integrity, especially in cybersecurity. So when it comes to integrity, you know, we mentioned the word hash, and I think it's probably a good time for us to define hash and hashing. And then we'll talk about digital signatures and I'll take hashing and I'll let Kip prepare himself for digital signatures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So now when you say hash, you're not talking about that stuff that comes in a can, right? No, 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 no. We're not, we're not talking about uh, hash or, uh, you know, drugs or anything like that uh, or hashish. Uh, when right. I talk about a hash, um, it is a, a encryption process uh, that is special. Now, this special encryption process, when we deal with confidentiality, we generally use what's known as a two-way process. So if I take a piece of data and I encrypt it, and then I hand it to Kip and he can decrypt it because we only want him and I to be able to read it, that would be confidentiality. And the, the, the idea of that is I take this paper, this one-page document, for instance, I scramble it all up, and then I give it to Kip, and he knows how I scrambled it so he can descramble it by using a certain key. And that's what we call a reversible encryption. Well, a hash only does that one way. It doesn't do it two ways. So if you take a hash of something, you're going to get a value. And most hashing algorithms are what are known as a fixed length output. So whether I take a sentence, I take a book, I take a movie, I take, you know, entire encyclopedia in Britannica with hundreds of books, put them together and put them through this hash algorithm, I will get the same value on the outside as far as the length. For instance, MD5, which is one of the most popular commonly used hashing algorithms up until a couple of years ago, it was a 128-bit hash. So if I put in the word A or the letter A or the word JSON or an entire you know constitution of the United States, I'm going to get 128 bits back in hexadecimal format. That thing serves as a fingerprint that identifies that file. Now, this is the great thing about hashes is that you can have the entire file and then you have this hash and I can send you both of them. Now, when you get it, you'll take that file, you'll put it through the hash and then you'll get a hash and you'll compare that hash to the one I sent you. If they match, that means that file hasn't changed from the time I hashed it and sent it to you. And that means you have integrity of that file. But if you add a single period, you take an A and make it capitalized instead of lowercase inside this you know, entirely hundreds of pages documents, it's going to make that hash look completely different. And, and that's the, the way that we use hashes. It works as this digital fingerprint. Now, I mentioned MD5. MD5 is what was really used for a long time. These days, though, almost everything is using SHA-256 or something higher than that. And the reason for this is that uh, when you're dealing with a fixed output, but an infinite number of inputs, you're going to have some things that are um, able to have the same hash value, right? And we don't want that to happen a lot. If it happens, we call that a hash collision. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, let's say I had the sentence, Jason is the best instructor, and I had the sentence, Kip is the best instructor. If both of those have the exact same hash value at the end, I can then substitute one message for the other. And that can be a breach of integrity because right. you think you're getting the file I sent, which says Jason is the greatest instructor, but instead you got the one that says Kip is the greatest instructor, and they have the same hash value. And that's so you can't tell it's been tampered with. 
Exactly. And that's how we can get around this integrity protection. Right. This is how bad guys get right. around integrity protection. And so we had to have better algorithms that have a longer hash digest. So we went from 128 bits to... Um, to 1024? Uh, well, we, we went to SHA-256, we're at 256, oh, yeah. uh, 256 bits, which is kind of the common one now. Uh, SHA-3 uses 384, and there's a couple that go higher, but in general, 256 is, is considered pretty good, because yeah. when you do 256 bits, the amount of combinations is in the billions of numbers. So it, it's, it's a pretty big number, and so there's a, very, there's, there's a chance of collisions, but it's a lot less than yeah. when you're using something like MD5, which has 128 uh, bit in, uh, outputs. And, and so that's why yeah. we kind of move to these bigger and bigger ones all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's kind of the, the basics of hashing. And we're going to talk more about this as we go through and do some of our mock interview questions and things like that. But before we do that, I did mention before digital signatures as well. And digital mm -hmm. signatures use hashes. And so let's talk a little bit about what is a digital signature, how they're created and how they're used. Uh, Kip, which part of that do you want to take first? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, these days I don't, I don't operate as a cybersecurity analyst and I'm not doing, you know, deep, technical work. So once upon a time, I had that all in the front of my brain. Yep. I don't anymore because I don't <laughs> need it. I have other people I can turn to and say, quick, how's the digital signature work? And they will tell me. But um, but I just want to talk about where you can expect to see digital signatures. Uh, commonly, you know, where I see them all these days is DocuSign yes. is because I'm executing contracts for my business with customers and subcontractors and that sort of thing. And you know, everybody's all over the place. And the idea that I'm going to get somebody to put an ink pen to a piece of paper is just never going to happen anymore. It's just not the way things work in this environment, this post-COVID environment. And so we need to find a way to get people's signatures without uh, physically meeting up with them. And so digital signatures are wonderful for using to sign contracts. If you uh, refinanced your mortgage recently before the interest rates went up, you probably did some kind of an online signature and that used you know, encryption to produce a digital signature, uh, both for integrity to show that the document hasn't changed since you signed it, but also for something we're going to talk about later on, which is non-repudiation, which means you can't deny that you've signed it. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and, and, you know, we just talked about digital signatures in a very generic way. I want to point out that there are two terms that sound very, very similar, but they are very, very different. So listen carefully. The first one is digital signature. We just we just mentioned that. The other one is digitized signature. Aha. Notice they're very, very close together, but they are very, very different. So if I'm using a digital signature, that is using this hashing idea and encryption to prove that you signed that document in a digital way. That is what is what is used with DocuSign and other services like that. Now, if I send you an email, I can digitally sign that email using what we're going to talk about, how it works, um, and that will give you integrity and it is a digital signature. Now, on the other hand, there's something called a digitized signature. And I use digitized signatures a lot because a lot of organizations don't accept a digital signature or they're not configured for that. For example, when I'm filing my quarterly report with the IRS, there's a PDF document that we have to fill out and they want me to physically print it off and sign it and then mail it in. Well, if I'm on travel at the time and I'm overseas, I won't do that. Instead, I will use a digitized signature, which is literally my signature in a digital format. It's a picture of my signature that can be placed on that on that document. And then I can send it to my operations officer and she can print it out at her house in Orlando and mail it into the IRS. Now, that 
doesn't mean that it is actually secure because Kip could have had a copy of my signature, a picture of it, and he could put it on any document he wants. Uh, and in fact, my operations officer, she has a, a copy of my digitized signature. And so if she needs to fill out that paperwork for the IRS, she doesn't even have to ask me. She just goes mm -hmm. and stamps it. It's basically like doing a rubber stamp in a digital form with Jason's signature on there. And that's how it goes out. So that is a digitized signature, not a digital signature. I love it. Thank you so much for distinguishing <laughs> between those because it's it's really important because they're they're two completely different technically completely different things and you would not want to think that a digitized signature gave you the integrity protections of yep. a digital signature and, and it doesn't right so you know right. if you go to the store and you buy something on your credit card um you know if i when i go to the restaurant to go buy lunch they often will bring you out the the little tablet for you to sign on, right? It looks like a little credit card terminal. You stick your card in, and then they say, oh, would you like to sign it at a tip? And you sign your name. That is not a digital signature. That is a digitized signature. All mm -hmm. they're doing is capturing your signature that you did. It's like a taking picture. a picture. Yep. That's exactly what they do. And that way they hold it in their record. So if you ever dispute it with a credit card company, say, I never ate lunch there. They'll go, well, you signed for it. And then they'll compare that to what's on your card and make sure it matches. And if it does, they'll say that's good enough. But it's not an actual digital signature. Now, a digital signature, on the other hand, is something like if I'm going to send you an email, you want to make sure that I sent it. When I send that email and I attach a digital signature to it, and in Outlook, it does this for you automatically if you've configured your digital signatures, it will take the message that I wrote, it will run it through a hash algorithm, generate that hash value. So let's say SHA-256, it's got this 256-bit value. Then it takes that value, and instead of just sending that with the message, because that would give me integrity, but it doesn't say that I'm the one who sent it. To make that a digital signature, we take that hundred that 256-bit hash value and we encrypt it using my private key. Because mm -hmm. if I encrypt something with my private key, only my public key can be used to decrypt it. And who has access to my public key? Everyone in the world. Everybody. Right? So anybody that's why it's public. Exactly. And that's what we want, right? Because you want to be able to get that message, take that encrypted uh, that signature which is essentially just an encrypted hash value, decrypt it, and now you've got the hash value. And you know that Jason sent it because only Jason had a private key for it. Now you run the same message through the hash. You see if your hash matches the one I sent you. And if they do, you know that digital signature is valid and that message has not been changed. Now, anywhere along the line, anybody else could have read that email. We didn't encrypt the email. All we did was encrypt the hash value. And mm -hmm. that is the difference here when we talk about digital signatures. Digital signatures give you integrity. They do not give you any confidentiality. If you want confidentiality, you have to also encrypt that message. And I would encrypt that using the person's public key that I want to send it mm -hmm. to. So if I'm sending you know, a bunch of ba banking documents over to Kip, uh, I'm going to encrypt it with Kip's public key so only Kip can decrypt it. But I'm also going to take my hash value of the message I sent and encrypt it with my private key so Kip knows it has integrity and it came from me. And that's how you get this confidentiality and integrity and non-repudiation yep. using digital signatures. But the digital signature, signature itself is just there to be yeah. able to encrypt that hash, and that is what gives you that integrity. So and, and that I, I, we're talking about when, when we talk about all these things. <laughs> yeah, and, and I want to say something about public key, private key. Uh, some, some of you who know about public key and private key might say, what? You can use a public key, private key pair to do a digital signature, really? Because I'm only ever used to thinking about it as something that I use to provide confidentiality for data. And yes, it's true, uh, which is what's one of the things that's so fantastic about public key encryption and why we're so fortunate that it was invented is because you can use it for both. Yes, exactly. So, you know, if you want, and this is for the certifications, if you're taking a certification exam, remember, 
if you want confidentiality, you're going to encrypt the message using the receiver's public key, so only they can decrypt it using their private key. But if you want to prove that there is integrity of the message, you want to encrypt the hash value of that message using your private key, because that way they know that message has not changed and only you could have sent it because only you have your private key. And so when you do both of those things, now you have confidentiality and integrity of that message as you send it. So I, I think that's a, a good um, coverage for certifications of yeah. what you need to know when it comes to integrity, right? Integrity is used for hashing, it's used for digital signatures, and a digital signature really is just a, a, taking that hash and encrypting it using your private key to say, I sent this, I promise it was me. Uh, and then we also have these physical anti-tamper devices, uh, whether that is some kind of a sticker that you're going to use, some kind of, um, you know, when you buy a, a jar of mayonnaise, there's a, a little plastic seal around it. That is an anti-tamper right. device. If that little plastic isn't there, you shouldn't trust what's in that jar because maybe somebody put some poison in that mayonnaise as yep. well. And so that's, yep. that's what we're talking about with anti -tamper. And sometimes when you go to buy those those jars like of jam or something like that, and you twist the top and it makes that little <laughs> noise, yep. right? Yeah, that that's that's also a tamper-resistant feature because if it doesn't make that pop, even though there's no seal under there, it means somebody's already opened it. Yep, and you can feel that right on the top of the jar. You'll see the little bump comes up instead of going yep. down, right? And, yep. and that's, that's how you can tell. Yep. Uh, all right, so now that we've covered you know, what is uh, integrity, what is hashing, what is digital signatures, how those affect you on certification exams, let's move into the job interview process. And so we're going to play uh, hiring manager and employee trying to get a job. And in this case, Kip is going to be the hiring manager, and he's going to ask me a question first, and then we'll reverse the roles. And we'll go through two or three of these to give you guys some uh, examples of right. interview questions you may get asked and what a good answer might sound like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And remember, a, a typically good answer for just about any of these is going to be somewhere between like one and three minutes or two and four minutes, something like that. And remember that a, you know, don't get lost in a 15 minute response. Try to keep it within the, those timeframes because if a hiring manager wants more details, they'll ask you. But if they feel like they've heard enough, they'll move on to the next question. So, so by not launching into a 15-minute explanation, just uh, you know, you're giving the you're showing respect to the hiring manager and you're letting them decide how much they want to hear from you. Okay. So, Jason. Yep. Oh, what I was going to say. Yeah, the other thing I was going to say is, you know, the format of your answer will also take um, will also depend on the format of the interview. So in this case, you know, if Zoom, uh, you know, Kip and I are doing this interview over Zoom, I'm not going to have a whiteboard and paper to be able to drop little pictures and show them what I'm doing. If I'm in a conference room and I see there's a whiteboard, I may say, you know, is it okay if I draw this out for you and explain it? Because if I'm explaining something like digital signatures, it's a lot easier to start drawing you uh, drawing yeah. a picture showing public and private keys and how they're all used to to make my point. So keep that in mind as well. In this case, we're doing it kind of a, a one-on-one -on -one Zoom type interview. So it's going to be mostly an audio response, or maybe I'll use my hands a little bit because uh, that's who I am, as you see <laughs> me constantly using my hands as I talk. Um, and, and that would be okay in a Zoom interview setting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Okay, so I'll play hiring manager. Jason, thanks for much, so much for uh, spending some time with me today. And what I'd like to ask you, first thing is, what exactly is a hash and how does it provide in data integrity? Yeah, so a hash is a um, one-way, a hashing algorithm is a one-way encryption algorithm, which means that we can take some amount of data, run it through this hash, and create a fixed length output. So, for example, if I take something that is a very long book, like the 
the Harry Potter book series, right? Mm -hmm. I can put it through this hashing algorithm. And if I change just a single space or a capitalization or a word or anything that gets changed, that hashing out algorithm's output, that hash digest, which is what we call it, would be drastically different. And so this individual uh, you know, 128 bit hash or this 256 bit hash serves as a digital fingerprint that uniquely identifies this file in its current state exactly how it is. And if anything gets changed on it, that hash algorithm is going to output a different hash digest. And this tells us that something has changed and therefore we don't have integrity anymore of those files or folders. Mm -hmm. And scene. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Get the job, right? <laughs> You're here, aren't you? <laughs> so, yeah. Again, I mean, that's like a one minute response. Yeah. Very quick to the point. Yeah. I kind of do they have the technical knowledge? And mm -hmm. I give you an example of what it looks like. The yeah. other thing that I often will do in these type of things is if I'm dealing with a non-technical audience, uh, in this case, Kip is, is being my hiring manager. I know he's got 20 something years of cybersecurity experience, so I can talk a little bit more technically. But if I was being interviewed by a panel of people and there were some people who maybe there's somebody from HR there, I would actually dumb down my response even more and say what I said, but then I would also go back and give it some sort of a, um, you know, use some kind of an expression or a simile or a metaphor or something like that to really drive home the point. And I might even say something like, you know, bring up the, the jar of mayonnaise example that we had with the little plastic routing, right? And the hash value, the hash digest basically serves as that plastic wrapper. If you see that digest is different, that means somebody has gone in and used that mayonnaise and you don't trust it anymore, right? And so you could say things like that as well. It just depends on your audience. Yeah, right. And I appreciate the way that you uh, talked about it at a high level and gave me the option to ask you follow-up questions about you know, some of the more nuanced technical aspects if I had wanted to. Yeah, so in this case, you know, what would be some good follow-up questions that Kip might have asked? He might have asked me, you know, what's the difference between MD5 and SHA-256, right? And that's getting much more technical because now we're talking about how long the digest is, what kind of an algorithm it is, what's the difference between this one and that one. Um, he might follow up with questions about, you know, collisions and, and what is the birthday paradox and all those other things that you hear about when you're studying for things like Security Plus. Those are all fair game, but we're just trying to keep it high level here to give you some, some basic examples and how you may uh, see that. Uh, right. So now we're going to switch roles and I'm going to ask Kip a question and we'll see how, how well he responds. So uh, Kip, <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, how can you verify that a file has not been modified by an attacker on a system when you're working as a cybersecurity analyst? Well, what I would do in that case is I would, I was, I would grab the file and without changing it, I would actually use a utility to generate a digital signature uh, for that file and then with, once I've got that signature and making sure that I'm using a modern algorithm and a key length that is also considered to be uh, secure, uh, I now have a, a basis for doing a comparison. And so uh, since, since I'm starting with the file that I suspect has been compromised, I will now have to go and retrieve the file that is known to be good. And I might do that by doing a file restoration from a backup. I would then repeat the di digital signature process on the, on the restored file. That would then allow me to compare them to know if they were the same or not. If they were not the same, that's when the real work would begin because I'd have to, I'd have to uh, launch some kind of a diff command to identify, to really have a computer hone in on what, what it changed. Good response. Yeah, the only feedback I'd have on that is I'd be careful about saying digital signature in the response like Kip did. Um, and the whole reason I'm, I'm saying that is digital signature is a type of hash, but it is not the only type of hash, right? And in this case, if I'm looking at a file on the file server that I think is corrupted, for instance, 
Jason's taxes 2019, um, you're not going to have a digital signature on that file, but you may have a hash value from, you can run a hash off the backup from three years ago and then a, a hash on the current file system and see what the difference is. So all that is the same except for saying a hashing algorithm instead of a, a, a digital signature because a digital signature requires that you're using a PKI infrastructure and you have something to encrypt it with. And you don't necessarily have that if you're dealing with a file on a hard drive. So just keep that in mind as, as you're working through those. One. Um, the the other thing um, you know that that I, I think is good is you know when we talk about a file that may be modified by an attacker. It depends on what the file is that we're we're researching, right? So if you think that it is a system file, you're on a Windows 11 system and you think that one of the system files has been modified by an attacker, how would you validate that? Well, there's a lot of ways to answer that question, right? Uh, one of the ways is we can use SFC, which is the system file checker. And if you've ever used system file checker in Windows, all it's doing is checking hash values of your current system against what Microsoft says is the valid hash for those. Mm. And if they don't match, it says that file has been tampered with. We don't know why. We don't know how. We don't care. Let's replace that file with a known good copy from our digitally signed version from Microsoft. <clears throat> um, and, and so that's just something to keep in mind. Um, you know, that said, uh, you know, where are you going to see digital signatures used inside of files? Generally, the most common place you'll see it with is what we call as code signing. If you ever heard the term code signing or package signing, if you're downloading an app from the app store, it is a digitally signed file that has been code signed using the public key, or excuse me, using the private key. Um, essentially, there is a digital signature placed on it, which is the private key of the organization, such as Microsoft, that has digitally uh, encrypted that hash value, and that serves as the digital signature. So if you're using a, a Microsoft product, they have digital signatures. If you're using an Apple product, they do. Some smaller developers may not. Most developers, if you have an account with the App Store or Google Play Store, those all those files are digitally signed by the manufacturer to say, yes, this is what the file looked like when I put it in the store. And anything that doesn't match this is no longer trusted. So keep those things in mind when we talk about hashes versus digital signatures, just keeps those differences uh, apart. And, and again, you know, um, you know, as Kip said earlier in the episode, he has, has has not been on that technical end of it for the last couple of years because he is working at the C-suite level, right? And so those are things that He's I'm happy to be your straight man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's okay, right? Um, but, but again, if you're going to take like a, a certification exam or you're going for a cybersecurity analyst role at a junior or mid-level, we would expect you to know the difference between those two, right? And so, so just keep that in mind as well. Yep. Um, all right. And the third one, I guess I'll, I'll play the, uh, the, the interviewee again. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Okay, Jason, I uh, just got another question for you here. Um, how, how would you validate that a backup was successful, like a data backup, and how would you validate that the files are intact and unchanged? That's a great question. So one of the things that I see a lot in the industry is that people do backups and then they just assume they're good. And you can't do that. A backup is only as good as your ability to restore it. And so one of the things I've always done in my systems is anytime I do a backup, about once a week, we will pull a random file from the backup and restore it to verify we have the ability to restore the file properly. Now, this brings us to our second point, which you asked was, how do I validate that that backup was successful, right. which is being able to restore from it, but also making sure that file hasn't changed since it was backed up. So when you do a backup, all of those files in most backup softwares will create a hash of each file being saved into the backup at the time of, of its uh, backup. When I do the restore and I restore the file called, you know, Kips pay, pay scale 2019 or whatever, um, I can then grab that. And I can run it through a hash once I've restored it. And then I compare the hash that I calculated versus the hash that we calculated when we save that to backup. And if they match, I know that file hasn't changed since it's been backed up. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we can validate the backup was successful and we've been able to successfully restore it. 
How's that? <laughs> Thank you, Jason. When can you begin? <laughs> uh, never. I'm too busy. <laughs> Thanks for interviewing me. I'm not taking the job. No. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, you know, and again, as you saw, that was a very quick 60 to 90 second answer. We went through what is a backup? How do you know a backup is good? And how do you validate the files once you've restored them? And those are kind of the three key points I wanted to make when we're talking about a backup uh, in terms of integrity and the ability to be able to restore from your backup, because that is one of the most common things that I see people miss inside of interviews I've done when I talk to them about backups and restores. People think that once you back up and you have it on tape, you're good. And it's like, well, if that tape doesn't actually work and you can't read from it and you can't restore that file, then guess what? Your backup is garbage and it doesn't matter. And I've been right. at organizations where I show up and I'm like, when's the last time you guys restored uh, from backup? And they're like, uh, last time we had a server crash was two years ago. And I'm like, so you haven't done a backup uh, restore since then? No, we do backups every night though. I'm like, yeah, and how good are they? Uh, I don't know. All right, let's pull yeah. a tape and let's see. And I had them pull a tape and when they tried to restore it, they couldn't restore. And the right. last one good backup that they could find was about two and a half weeks ago. And yeah. so that tells you like, hey, you can back up every night, but if, if you're never trying to restore, you don't know if it's good or not. And so that's, that's really what we're focused on. And that on. happens way more than you think. <laughs> oh, all the time. <laughs> way <laughs> more. Little secrets that you're going to experience in the real world of cybersecurity. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> backup systems will back up to almost any command combination you issue yes. to it. But if you're issuing you know, the wrong commands and then you're trying to restore, Yep. Nope. Or, I mean, the other thing is, you know, depending on where you're backing up, the backup thing you're backing up to may not be good. So in the case yep. of this organization, they had they were using a grandfather, father, son backup tape rotation method. And everything they're doing was on these, you know, LTO, you know, terabyte size tapes. And they're like, yeah, they're great, but these tapes are stupid expensive, right? And so what, and to do a grandfather, father, son, they need about 30 to 40 tapes. And so it was very, very expensive to run this. And they weren't rotating their tapes frequently enough. And they have, we're using the same tapes that they've been using for three or four years. Well, mm -hmm. tapes only have a certain number of read and writes to them. And so after about a year or two, you probably want to replace those tapes. And that, that was the problem is they weren't doing that. And they were just assuming they were good because again, they never tried restoring because they never had to. Right. Uh, and so you want, if you're doing, if you're setting up integrity and backup and restore practices in your organization, always make sure you're setting up where you're doing a restore at least once a week to test that you can restore things because that is going to be critical for you in this whole backup world. Yeah. Talk about a false sense of security. We're covered. Everything's yeah, we're backed up. Backups. I got a whole drawer of backup tapes. No, they don't work. Oh, well, that doesn't mm. matter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So we've been going for a while and I think it's probably time for us to start wrapping up this episode. Hopefully uh, you found value today as we covered lots of different things in terms of integrity. Remember, when we talk about integrity, we are talking about making sure that the data that exists in your system is the right data. So if I look at my bank balance and it says I have $1,000 in there, the bank would be really mad if I added a zero by accident and I have $10,000. Conversely, I would be really mad if they dropped a zero and said I only had $100, right? And that's what we're talking about with integrity. I don't care that you can see what my bank balance is. I care that my bank balance is actually right and it is the yeah. amount of money I put in that account. That's what we're talking about with integrity. And we do this through things like hashing, digital signatures, or in the real world, we use anti-tamper physical devices like the mayonnaise jar with the little plastic wrap or the jelly <laughs> jar with the little sound that you made earlier. Yeah. Um, so that, that's what we're talking about when we talk about uh, integrity inside the CIA triad. 
Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, I hope you join us again next time. Next time we'll be diving into the A in the CIA triad. And we'll be talking all about availability and we'll talk more about backups and restorations and, and continual uh, plans of making sure you're up and running and business continuity and disaster recovery and all that fun stuff. So definitely join us. We'll have a lot of great stories to share in terms of availability uh, because it's something that really does affect all of us on a daily basis. Uh, and other than that, I do want to recommend that you go over to yourcyberpath.com and go over to the main page and sign up for our mentor notes. Every week, Kip sends you out a great email that gives you a lot of good information that you can put to work in your daily practice, either as a cybersecurity professional or somebody trying to break into the cybersecurity market. Either way, you can do all of that over at yourcyberpath.com and then just click on the front page there. You'll see there is a spot to enter your email and sign up for those free mentor notes. They cost you nothing and they're really, really valuable for you. So I hope you join us there. And until next time, we'll see you on the next episode of Your Cyberpath. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Your Cyber Path. Don't miss an episode. Press the subscribe button now. If you would like to learn more about how to get your dream cybersecurity job, then be sure to visit yourcyberpath.com, where you can access the show notes, search the archive of our top tips and tricks, and discover some fantastic bonus content.